Holy Father, C.S. Lewis is not Jesus Christ. Everything that is admirable, good, and true, and beautiful is a reflection and is because of Christ. And the failures and faults are covered by the blood of Christ. And so in this way we can receive Lewis as a gift to your church from your hands. And I pray we would do so wisely, we would do so gratefully, in a way that ultimately does not glorify Lewis, but glorifies Christ. In whose name we ask this, amen. C.S. Lewis, November 29, 1898, to November 22nd, it was just a week shy of his 64th birthday, if I'm doing the math right, November 22nd, 1963, also the date that Aldous Huxley and JFK died. He dubbed himself Clive, Sta- Clive Staples Lewis, dubbed himself Jaxie at age four, and became known as Jack to all of his friends. He was born to Albert, who was a court solicitor. We would call, them an, call him an attorney or a lawyer. He was born to Albert and Flora in Northern Ireland. His imagination would begin to grow green in Ireland. His logic would grow sharp in England somewhat during his boarding school experience, but especially under his being tutored, taught by the knock, William Kirkpatrick. His body would serve his country as an officer in World War I. His labor would involve teaching at Oxford for 20 Nine years in Cambridge for nine years thereafter. His lifelong friends would be um, his brother, Warney, Warren, also known as Arch Piggy Bottom, Piggy Botham. Uh, their nurse called them, talked about their little Piggy Bothams. And uh, so Warney was Arch Piggy Botham, and Lewis was Small Piggy Botham. Uh, and his uh, neighbor, childhood friend, Albert Graves. His love would be Joy Davidman, his God, the Lord Jesus Christ. But his soul, in a way we could say, was in writing. Whatever else Lewis was, and he was other things, but preeminently, he was a writer. It's such that he lives on today, that he's remembered today. Biographer Alistair McGrath, summing up Lewis's thoughts along these lines, says, the important thing about authors is the text they write. What really matters is those text, what those texts themselves say. Lewis was taking particular issue with the literary criticism of the day that wanted to look at the author really more than they did what the author wrote. And so you would have this, these kind of deconstructions of their works and these kind of Freudian analysis of, of why they wrote what they wrote and In that, Lewis argued in a debate, to see things as the poet sees them, I must share his consciousness and not attend to it. I must look where he looks and not turn round to face him. 
I must make of him not a spectacle, but a pair of spectacles. In fine, as Professor Alexander would say, I must enjoy him and not contemplate him. And this really, you see, puts me in a conundrum because I want to consider Lewis, and Lewis is a writer, and he says when you think of writers, you don't look at the writer, you look at what they wrote. Nonetheless, I do want to look at Lewis. Lewis feared that he was going to be something of a faddish pair of throwaway contacts, though, not an enduring pair of timeless glasses, and he could not have been more wrong. Much of what Lewis wrote was prophetic, but he was far off when he said, I'm going to be in a letter, he wrote in 1951, I'm going to be, if I live long enough, one of those men who was a famous writer in his 40s and dies unknown, like Christian going down into the green valley of humiliation, which is the most beautiful thing in Bunyan, and can be the most beautiful thing in life, if a man takes it quite rightly, a matter I think and pray about a good deal. Now, Lewis, again, was very prophetic in much of what he wrote. That letter, complete, fail in prediction. But what kind of writer was Lewis? Well, what kind was he not? He wrote poetry, allegory, apologetic works, science fiction, children's fantasy, historical philology, literary criticism, academic essays, letters, short stories, and a spiritual autobiography. The diversity lends credit to Peter Kreef's remark that Lewis was not a man, he was a world. When George Sayer, who was one of Lewis's students, first met Lewis, he's getting ready to go into Lewis's rooms. Lewis is going to be his tutor. He wants to know, uh, you know, sent me, sent me along. This isn't like an official tutor session yet, but what should I be reading before school session starts? Sayer's getting ready to go in, and uh, a mumble-mouthed, tall gentleman is getting ready to go in, who Lewis addresses as tallers, as Tolkien. Tolkien is not well-known at this point. And uh, Tolkien is, he, he says, just let me in, I, I need to just grab something real quick. And, and uh, Tolkien leaves, Sayers goes in, talks with Lewis, and he, he leaves and he encounters on some stone steps outside Tolkien, uh, probably smoking, and, uh, and Tolkien says, how'd it get along? And Sayers replied, I think rather well, I think he will be a most interesting tutor to have. And Tolkien replied, interesting, yes, he's certainly that. You'll never get to the bottom of them. And Sayers confesses that though they went on to become friends, not just student-teacher, but dear friends, he never got to the bottom of Lewis. Though there is such diversity, such depth in Lewis, there's underlying all that diversity a unity. There's not only a diversity in genre, there's a diversity within genre. You, you come to his fiction and you see, uh, you, you see, till we have faces, this set in an in a ancient Greek, uh, para-Greek kind of culture. You, you've got the space trilogy science fiction. You've got Narnia. There's not only diversity in, uh, with genre, there's diversity within genre, but there's this unity that underlies everything that he wrote. You can read one of Lewis's essays and then run into the same thought in Narnia, and then discover it yet again in a personal letter that he wrote. 
and then find it yet again in a piece of literary criticism. It can be these works that are completely different, and you wouldn't think he'd ever get around to the same kind of subject matter or thought, and it works its way in naturally. David Downing, after mentioning the diversity of Lewis's writings, goes on to say, Yet one always senses in Lewis's books the one in the many, his singular way at looking at things, his characteristic habits of thought and speech developed early in his life, uh, and they developed early in his life and remain remarkably constant. So there's a fascinating interconnectedness in all the books Lewis wrote. Reading any one of them casts light upon all the others. Owen Barfield put it most uh, markedly. He said, what he thought about everything was secretly present in what he said about anything. Now again, Lewis has many potholes. Some of them, small annoyances. Others, hazardous, dangerous. And yet, what keeps him grounded in a way that's so beneficial is that his mere Christianity, which we'll discuss, his, his Christian worldview at a basic orthodox level so permeated and controlled everything that he wrote. It, it was there, it was consistent. And this leads us to the next marked feature of his writing. He was unoriginal. His unoriginality is one of the best things about his writing. Both Lewis and Tolkien despised the kind of uh, writing of their time that strove for originality, uniqueness. And he and Tolkien didn't didn't strive towards that at all, and it made them stand out in a way. Whenever you read Lewis or you read Tolkien, you see all the kind of sources that they're drawing from that are influencing them. And, and yet, when you, Tolkien would write a lot about sub-creation. Writing is to be this act of sub-creation, a way in which we image forth God. And whenever Tolkien does it, he does sub-creation to such an extent and level that his works stand independently. You can, if you reflect on it, you can see, oh, I see what influenced Tolkien. And, and you know, I can see Numenor and Atlantis. I can see a bit of a link there. You can see influences. But his works really stand alone. Lewis, you see blatantly right there where he's drawing from. And so you're reading along and all of a sudden you encounter Father Time or Bacchus, or even Father Christmas, or Arthur and Merlin, or places like Numenor and Atlantis. And this kind of thing drove Tolkien nuts. He didn't, Lewis is known as being the, um, the doula, the, the one who assisted the birth of Lord of the Rings. He loved it. Tolkien couldn't stand the Chronicles. He did not like the Chronicles of Narnia. Ayn Rand says that Lewis was a pickpocket of concepts. And Dyer and Watson conclude that the major contribution of Lewis's writings was not primarily in groundbreaking substance, but in presentation. Now, there's a lot to that, and yet at the same time, it's, it's not simply that he presents things well, 
It's this wealth of literature that has stood the test of time upon which Lewis is drawing all these ancient, enduring themes that resonate with men's hearts that he's drawing on and incorporating that makes Lewis himself so timeless. And then you add to that a giftedness at presentation. That's, that's why his unoriginality is so powerful. He concludes in his book, An Experiment in Criticism, where he argues that good books are those which demand good reading. And good reading, he says, is, a, is whenever you read books again and again, and you read them in a certain kind of depth and level. And he says, those of us who've been true readers all our life seldom realize the enormous extension of our being which we owe to authors. We realize it best when we talk with an unliterary friend. He may be full of goodness and good sense, but he inhabits a tiny world. In it we should be suffocated. The man who is contented to be only himself and therefore less a self is in prison. My own eyes are not enough for me. I will see through those of others. Reality, even seen through the eyes of many, is not enough. I will see what others have invented. Even the eyes of all humanity are not enough. I regret that the brutes cannot write books. Very gladly would I learn what, the face, what face things present to a mouse or a bee. More gladly still would I perceive the olfactory world charged with all the information and emotion it carries for a dog. How nice not to simply have another's eyes, Lewis ponders, but another's nose. But in reading great literature, he goes on, I become a thousand men and yet remain myself. Like the night sky in the great poem, I see with a myriad of eyes, yet it is still I who see. Here, as in worship, in love, in moral action, and in knowing, I transcend myself and am never more myself than when I do. In Lewis's inaugural address at Cambridge, he spoke of himself as a dinosaur, the last of a dying breed that they would do well to avail themselves of, who, and he's speaking of himself not as a professor, as some kind of professional, he's speaking of himself as a dying breed of a kind of student. A kind of student who could read the classics as a native. He was so educated in the classics that he read Homer as Homer's contemporary would. He, he lived in that kind of medieval worldview. We'll discuss that and, and even a worldview beyond, before that. So uh, finally, as to what kind of writer Lewis was, I would say, as Peter Kreft is, is known for crafting the phrase, he's a romantic rationalist. In Lewis, both hemispheres came together in his writing. This is why you can find Professor Kirk dealing with the, the Pevensey children, telling them, exasperated, what do they teach in schools these days? Like their failure at logic. It's all in Plato, he says. And what's he, what's he uh, so exasperated about that they failed to recognize logically? They failed to recognize that Lucy must have been to Narnia and seen a fawn. That's the kind of thing that comes together in Lewis's writing. The intellect and the imagination. And so you'll find logic in Narnia. 
you'll find the trifecta, Lewis, trilemma, excuse me. You'll find Lewis's trilemma. Jesus must be liar, lunatic, or Lord in that conversation that Professor Kirk has with Lucy. So you'll find logic in Narnia, and then you'll find these playful metaphors in mere Christianity. For a long time, these two parts of Lewis were in conflict. The imaginative, the logical, but they were to become wed and be very fruitful. Now the linchpin as to my argument is why we should consider Lewis as an author is to ask this question. Why, primarily how we should conceive of him is as an author, a writer, ask this question, why did Lewis write? He began writing as a child for fun. His world was books. His, their, the, their home, Little Lee in Ireland, was filled with books. His dad was an avid reader, and so he read, but he also wrote. And he began writing with uh, what, was called, what he called Animal World. And there are even drawings that go with this that are... Uh, you, can, you can begin to sense a little bit of Narnia as you're reading this, but Animal World was different because these are uh, frogs standing up in a suit, top hat, and uh, they, they behave... Um, more like modern men rather than ancient knights. But anyway, you see Lewis uh, loving Narnia world, and later that becomes um, wed with Warren's India of his imagination that he liked to scheme and think about, and they created the meshed world called Boxen. And so he began, why did Lewis write? He began writing for fun. He enjoyed it. But not only for fun... He wrote because of pain. In a letter to a childhood and his childhood and lifelong friend, Arthur Greaves, who was down at the time, he advised, cheer up. And whenever you are fed up with life, start writing. Ink is the great cure for all human ills, as I have found out long ago. Now that's before he's converted. He would probably state things a bit differently after his conversion. But there's something there that carries through with Lewis. That point will be vividly demonstrated if I get to a grief observed uh, near the end of this lecture. But it'll be vividly demonstrated if we get to, to deal with that. But at this point, this is 1916. Lewis has yet, he, he just has entered Oxford. He's yet to serve on the front lines in World War I and um, where he would be injured by an exploding shell, shrapnel, from friendly fire and be sent back home. It's, uh, this is before he would lose his wife, Joy. So one wonders what Lewis was, was writing about to cure his ills at this point. It could have been the death of his mother at age nine, the estrangement that continued with his father for all the years thereafter. It could have been his experience in English boarding schools, especially Wynyard, which he speaks of in his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy, by the name of Belsen, which if uh, you're not aware, was a German concentration camp. One author has said uh, that Wynyard was a good concentration camp. It was a bad school. 
The harsh headmaster soon proved insane, and the school shut down after that. Whatever the answer as to what Lewis wrote to, to find comfort regarding, it's clear that he wrote as much for joy as he did, as much for comfort as he did for joy. And this relates to his need to write to think. He writes to think. Walter Hooper, who was his secretary in, in his latter years, once asked him, how do you write with such ease? To tease that out a, a little bit, whenever Lewis wrote uh, fiction, he, he, just, he pretty much sat down and wrote it out just easily. It came. He, he, pictures, he said, would come to his mind, and he'd just kind of write from those pictures that he, he kind of had in his mind. And, and so he, he wrote that with ease and did very little editing after the fact. Whenever it came to some of his more academic titles, then he would pour over those more. So Hooper asked, how do, you, how do you write with ease? And Hooper records, he told me that the thing he loved most about writing was that it did two things at once. He illustrated this saying, I don't know what I mean till I see what I've said. I don't know what I mean till I see what I've said. In other words, Hooper says, writing and thinking were a single process. This has been one of the most helpful things to me in, in sermon preparation. The, uh, and I would commend it to you in so many ways of life. That the, the best tool I have found for thinking is a pen and a piece of paper. And it's almost, it's almost as if a lot of times in, in crafting a sermon, you've, you've analyzed the text, you've thought on the text but you really don't come to your clearest thinking until you begin to try to communicate the text. You begin to think about how do I express this? And, and you actually begin to do your best thinking. Like there, there's all kinds of times you finish your study and you don't know, what am I going to do? How am I going to communicate this? I've got nothing. And you begin to write and the thoughts come along as you write. That brings me to the last bit. Lewis simply had to write. Reminds me of one of my favorite author says he writes to make the voices in his head go away. In another letter to Greaves written in 1930, Lewis wrote, as for the real motives for writing, after one has got over the desire for acknowledgement, in the first place I found and find that precisely at the moment when you really put all that out of your mind and decide not to write again, you see all the selfishness that's wrapped up in it. I'm not going to write anymore. Or, if you do, to do it with clear consciousness that you're only playing yourself. Precisely then, the ideas which came so rarely when you regarded yourself officially as an author begin to bubble and simmer. And sooner or later, you will have to write. And the question, why, won't really enter your mind. And so here Lewis is, as you see, a, a, a beautiful picture of sanctification. He's gifted in this way. But whenever that gift turns in upon itself, and it's for his own self-promotion, it chokes and it, it dies and it shrivels. And then whenever he mortifies it, he finds that what he said, I'll, I, he sees the selfishness in it no more, not for selfish glory. And at that point, life. 
and he has to do it. That's the introduction. Uh, I think it's pretty much hopeless that we'll make it through everything that I, I would really like to. But uh, here's, the, here's the plan. At the beginning and end, consider Lewis's autobiographical works which really frame his life. Surprised by joy, deals with his early years, and a grief observed and experienced near the end of his life. In between, take up poetry, apologetics, fiction, academic, and his letters in turn. Cover those different areas of writing. I'm going to aim to make it through fiction. That's what I really want to get to. If anything gets sacrificed, it'll be the academic writings and the letters. So, biographical part one, Surprised by Joy. Published in 1955, it's not so much an autobiography it's, as it's autobiographical. It's a, it's a spiritual conversion story. It belongs in the same category of a rare select group of works like Augustine's Confessions and Bunyan's uh, um, Grace Abounding to the Chiefest of Sinners. Put it in that kind of collection. And to understand it best, if you're really serious if you, about Lewis and you really want to study this work, I'd say read it alongside A Pilgrim's Regress, which, as you may guess, is a, a play on The Pilgrim's Progress. And the idea that Lewis had in mind there, here you can see the autobiographical nature of it, of A Pilgrim's Regress, is th that Lewis was raised in a, in a Christian home. That was the, the atmosphere of it, if you will. How devout and true of Christians his parents were, that's, that's another issue. But it was Christian in name. Um, he, he's raised in a Christian home. He, as he's educated, becomes a, a, a resolved atheist. And then he regresses back to where he began uh, with Christianity. And so, uh, the pilgrim's regress is really an allegory of Lewis's conversion. And if you're going to read the pilgrim's regress, though, get the Wade annotated edition. There are so many allusions and references throughout the pilgrim's regress, even Lewis himself said it's too obscure. But the Wade Annotated Edition helps a great deal in seeing what Lewis is doing. Um, any, anyway, both, both works, uh, Lewis in Surprised by Joy and John, the protagonist, which is another hat tip to John Bunyan, in The Pilgrim's Regress, in both of them, we see them go a certain direction, and return back where they began. If Lewis had not been converted, Surprised by Joy would have been titled Disappointed by Joy. And Joy has a capital J throughout that work. He has a very specific definition for joy. After mentioning three experiences of kind of transcendent joy, in his childhood, he then gives this kind of definition. Joy is an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. 
I call it joy, capital J, which is here a technical term and must be sharply distinguished from both happiness and from pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and only one in common with them, the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. Apart from that, and considered only in its quality, it might almost equally well be called a particular kind of unhappiness or grief. But then it is a kind we want. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power and pleasure often is. Joy, this kind of longing that's not satisfied, that's greater than any satisfaction. He said, that's not within our power and grasp. You can run after pleasure and experience it. But this thing I'm talking about, it's not something that's within your power. And so then, the rest of the book, if you're thinking, this is going to be a conversion story, and about halfway through, there's the turn, and and it doesn't work that way. It works the same way as whenever you're reading Confessions or Grace Abounding is you're wondering, when is he saved? Is he saved now? Does he know Christ? You're, you're frustrated in some ways. Lewis, it's much more clear though, whenever that conversion did come. It was in the Ireland of his childhood that he first sensed this transcendent thing he's calling joy. In things such as fairy, myth, fiction. It was all in the imaginary. And then in his boyhood, as he's educated, Lewis contrasts childhood and boyhood in in Surprised by Joy. In his boyhood, he begins to think logically, materialistically, and then atheistically. And what that does is choke. He, He still has this longing for that kind of experience of joy, something that he's tasted. He, he wants it. And now this atheistic worldview that he has says there's no satisfaction for that longing that you have. So what happens in his conversion, which comes upon him suddenly, is not that he finds so much joy but he finds that which joy was a longing for. He writes, this is near the conclusion of Surprised by Joy. But what in conclusion of joy? For that, after all, is what the story has mainly been about. To tell you the truth, the subject has lost nearly all interest for me since I became a Christian. I could not indeed complain, like Wordsworth, that the visionary gleam has passed away. I believe, if the thing were at all worth recording, that the old stab, the old bittersweet, has come to me as often and as sharply since my conversion as at any time of my life, whatever. It's something like, are you sensing homesickness? But I now know that the experience, considered as a state of my own mind, had never had the kind of importance I once gave to it. It was valuable only as a pointer to something other and outer. While that other was in doubt, the pointer naturally loomed large in my thoughts. 
When we are lost in the woods, the sight of a signpost is a great matter. He who first sees it says, look! The whole party gathers round and stares, but when we have found the road and are passing signpost every few miles, we shall not stop and stare. They will encourage us, and we shall be grateful to the authority that set them up, but we shall not stop and stare, or not much. Not on this road, though their pillars are of silver and their lettering of gold, we would be at Jerusalem. So joy, this kind of longing, is a signpost. You're out hiking, and you turn a corner, and you see this waterfall. And it's as if you're lifted up out of yourself in contemplating the glory and the beauty. And yet you sense, this is only a signpost. There's something beyond this. This is only awakening a desire in me. And it's unmet by this thing itself. He says, once he's found Christ, he's found that which joy is pointed to. How healthy is this for your Christian walk? We're too often after joy. And what that is, Lewis paints it for us so beautifully, is staring at a signpost. And Lewis's advice would be to us, keep walking. Instead of going after joy, walk where it's pointing. Poetry. I'll try to be quicker here. C.S. Lewis's literary ambition, his first literary ambition was to be a poet. His first published works, uh, Spirits in Bondage, Collection of Poems, 1919, The Longer Narrative Poem, Dimer, 1926, were not bad, but they weren't exceptional either. Uh, Their value is really for the student of Lewis to see, uh, you can see this conflict, this longing for joy, you can see the the imaginary Lewis uh, running into conflict with the logical Lewis. And although he failed as a poet, it's the poetic nature of his prose, its rhythm, its images, its kind of poetic impulse. Uh, You see this in all the metaphors of Lewis, what John Piper calls the likening in Lewis, of which he was a master, um, that make Lewis intoxicating. And also, Lewis knew how to read poetry. He was a he did not like modern poetry. He liked the, the rhythm and the meter of, and the structure of old poetry. And he knew how to read it. And he, he would give advice to writers, don't write for the eye, write for the ear. Think about how the words, there's a poetic cadence even to his prose that makes him so attractive. It was the, also as the old epic long narrative poems that really gripped Lewis and influenced him, like Spencer's The Fairy Queen or Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. And so the atheistic Lewis, you'll see in this early poetry, was writing poetry inspired by and expressive of myth. And it's this element of myth that's critical in understanding his conversion that serves as a signpost pointing him to God. He, he writes again in Surprised by Joy, Such then was the state of my imaginative life. Over against it stood the life of my intellect. The two hemispheres of my mind were in the sharpest contrast. On the one side, a many-islanded sea of poetry and myth. 
and the other, a glib and shallow rationalism. Nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. And then came this famous conversation with Tolkien and Hugo Dyson, also two Oxford uh, fellows. And they met for dinner on September 19th, 1931. Went for a walk, long walk thereafter on Addison's Walk, uh, a beautiful pathway in Oxford. Then retired to Lewis's rooms and spoke until three in the morning. And what came out of that was Tolkien making an appeal to Lewis's imagination and mythic impulse, if you will, to point him towards the gospel. And what he, he pointed out to Lewis, who was already looking and wrestling with the gospels in some ways, that the mythic quality of the resurrection was no reason to disbelieve it. And by that, Tolkien was not saying that the resurrection is a myth. He said there's a mythic quality to it. And what they mean by this, what Lewis would understand by it, uh, he would later write of in this way. We're not talking about truth, but meaning. Meaning, which is the antecedent condition, both of truth and falsehood whose antithesis is not error, but nonsense. So truth has the antithesis of error. Meaning has the antithesis, he's saying, of nonsense. He said, I am a rationalist. For me, reason is the natural organ of truth. So here's truth, and the, the capacity man has to deal with truth is his intellect, reason. But... Imagination is the organ of meaning. Imagination producing new metaphors or revivifying old is not the cause of truth, but its condition. Now, if this distinction is lost on you, consider this. Recall that teacher that you had in high school. The most boring teacher. Say he's a history teacher. And it drones on and on. And your mind is filled with facts. And they have zero meaning for you. And then your English teacher tells you to read Lord of the Rings. And it has deep significance and meaning. And impacts the way you live and walk through life. That's something of the distinction. Now, that's not to say that facts always should have that boring element and, and the imaginary is fun. That's not the point. The point is uh, this myth can, being able or fiction, uh, the imaginary conveying meaning. You see, uh, in Lewis's, uh, what, what's led up to this is Lewis and Tolkien's friendship was really kindled by a group of professors, teachers, dons, who met to discuss uh, Norse mythology, reading it in the original Icelandic. Uh, Tolkien was a theologist, and so he would walk them through and they'd read this. And, and Lewis began to express sadness 
that England had no kind of myth like this. And you can see how this led into their their conversations. You also need to realize that northernness and north mythology was one of those early experiences for Lewis of, of, of joy, of sensing something transcendent. And Lewis later reflects on all of this. He says, now the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with tremendous difference that it really happened. And one must be content to accept it in the same way, remembering that it is God's myth, whereas the others are men's myth. Now, immediately what happened here in this conversion was, admittedly by Lewis, only a conversion to theism. His conversion to Christ would happen a short time later as he's riding along with his brother to the zoo. And he says, I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning when we set out. I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Lewis could not work intellectually towards belief. He worked a lot of things out intellectually, but towards belief and confidence that Jesus Christ is Lord, he couldn't work himself intellectually there. He could not even work himself there through his imagination. He was surprised by joy. Ultimately, it was not Lewis who found joy, though he pursued it so, but joy that found Lewis. It was in God that Lewis supremely found truth and meaning, beauty and truth, reason and romance. It was God, you see, who put the poetry in Lewis's prose. That prose would then be put powerfully to work in his profound and logical defense of the faith. Lewis frequently made it clear he's no professional theologian. But if he's regarded as an expert in any area related to theology, it's in the practical, applied area of theology we call apologetics. And yet, he didn't really set out to write apologetics. All the apologetic works that came from his pen happened by invitation or inquiry. Um, you might say some essays, he, he went out with that purpose, but even then he was responding to something. And so in 1939, Ashley Simpson uh, with Jeffrey Bless Publishers asked Lewis if he would be willing to write a volume on the subject of pain for their Christian Challenge series. It's a testament to the author that we know nothing of that series, but we know the problem of pain. Lewis's foray then into apologetics began by tackling, really, probably the biggest apologetic question there is. If God is good, what do you do with evil? The problem of evil is assumed in the problem of pain. And Lewis's answer is not the best answer, it's not the most complete answer, but it's a good one with penetrating insight at times. It's valuable, it's, a, it's good reading along these lines. And because of that, in 1941, he was asked to give a series of talk, talks on BBC Radio. And the first was so popular, he delivered a second, and then a third, and then a fourth. And these were published sequentially as broadcast talks, Christian behavior, then beyond personality, and then they're all gathered together, and we know them as mere 
Christianity. Borrowing a phrase from Richard Baxter. And his aim with mere Christianity, and this, is, this is, runs throughout the rest of Lewis's life. This is what he considered in his theological writings. This was his aim. It was simply to bring people into the hallway of Orthodox Christianity. Bring them into the hallway, and then, if I can bring anyone into the hall, I shall have done what I attempted. But it is in the rooms, not the hall, that there are fires and chairs and meals. The hall is the place to wait in, a place from which to try the various doors, not a place to live in. So Lewis is often abused in this, in his uh, championing mere Christianity as if that's enough, as we should settle with that. Lewis never advised that. He just saw his apologetic and theological gifts. I'm not a theologian, he would say again and again. Go to the pastors and the clergy for that. My aim is simply to get you into the hall and from there, for you to get into one of the rooms. His final major apologetic work was Miracles, 1947. It was occasioned by correspondence with Dorothy Sayers. You may be familiar. She wrote um, um, mystery, detective kind of novels. And an atheist was bothering her with questions. And Lewis, this is Lewis's apologetic at its best, most refined, most worked out. And yet, it's the one that received the strongest rebuttal a friendly rebuttal from a Catholic uh, colleague at Oxford, Elizabeth Anscombe. And Lewis was the president of the Socratic Club, and there would be debate there. And she debated Lewis's arguments in chapter 6, I believe it is. I don't have the chapter number. The cardinal difficulty, uh, the, the, the self-contradiction of the naturalist, third chapter. She argued that his argument there was flawed, Lewis rewrote that chapter, retitled it, but even so, many have argued that that debate with Anscombe soured Lewis on apologetics. I don't think that sticks. I agreed with, with Michael Ward that Lewis didn't retreat from apologetics at that point. Uh, for one reason, you see, uh, Mere Christianity was actually published after this. He'd already given the lectures, he'd already, the earlier versions of of the sections had already come out, but the compilation came afterwards. He still wrote some essays, but he didn't write another major apologetic work. It's true, after miracles. Lewis didn't retreat from apologetics. He took a new strategic angle. And that's whenever you see Narnia and you see the same apologetics embedded within there. Ward suggests that Narnia was a deliberate engagement with, rather than a retreat from, her critique of his theology. And so now we come to his imaginative works. Before we consider Narnia, though, I want to consider what, what preceded that Enscombe debate, uh, his space trilogy. And for one, one reason, Lewis, he embedded his apologetics. He was doing that in his fiction already, and you see that in the space trilogy. And you, you especially see it in the final volume, That Hideous Strength. Lewis began writing the Space Trilogy as a kind of wager with Tolkien. He said, there's too little of what we really love in books, Tallers. We'll have to write it ourselves. And so the wager was that Tolkien had to write a time travel piece, and Lewis was going to write the science fiction piece. 
Tolkien began the story, it was going to be a travel back in time to Numenor, uh, titled The Lost Road, and uh, it, it was abandoned, but Lewis carried through on his assignment. And the three most prominent Inklings, the Inklings was this group of, of authors and writers and some friends, but really the core element of it was that these were writers. Uh, the, the three most prominent all made their ways in, way into this space trilogy. The, uh, the obvious one that you're struck with first is that Lewis is the narrator, the one speaking to you in the first two books, as Lewis, as, a, as an academic uh, colleague of Sir, not Sir, El, of Elwyn Ransom, uh, who's the protagonist. Ransom is a philologist, and he reminds one of Tolkien until the last book, and then he smells like Charles Williams. But the reason I begin to tease that out, the two things I really want to draw your attention to in the Space Trilogy, is that ascending a philologist into space is a genius stroke in writing a Space Trilogy, because he can learn the languages, you see. But the way it plays out is more profound than this. Ransom on Mars, Malachandra, is able to learn the language known as Old Solar from an Eldil, which is an archangel-like creature, if you will, that's over each one of the, the seven planets has a kind of angelic being that is over it. I'll get to seven planets and why I said that in a minute. Um, but he's learned Old Solar, this, in, this language that the creatures there speak, but he's, he's conversed with this angelic creature itself and has, has been able to communicate with him. The reason why that's important is the book that really made Lewis popular, the first one that got him recognition, was the Screwtape Letters. And the published preface begins... I have no intention of explaining how the correspondence, which I now offer to the public, fell into my hands. You see Lewis with this kind of playful preface, right? In 2012, a Lewis scholar reviewing a handwritten copy of the preface, which is housed at the Wade Center in Wheaton College, found several variations in contrast to the final published version. There, the opening sentence says, Nothing will induce me to reveal how my friend Dr. Ransom got hold of the script which is translated in the following pages. The Screwtape Letters is part of the Space Trilogy. Ransom translated it. How do we get this, this uh, demonic correspondence? How, how did we come into possession of it? And Lewis's Answer which he didn't disclose to the public, which is another thing I'd like to go into is why, why might he have done that? But uh, the, this philologist who is, is, can speak in these angelic tongues is the one who's translated it. The most important thing about the space trilogy, though, is the medieval cosmology that runs through it. One false assumption of the medieval cosmos is that they were all flat earthers who believed in this geocentric universe. 
And what Lewis demonstrates in the discarded image, which is where he wants as a dinosaur to teach others how to read these texts as a native, what he does there is, is unpack the medieval worldview, and he argues that, yes, we see flat earthers in the dark ages, but the medieval model held to a spherical earth, and yes, everything was rotating around it, but the point wasn't that earth was at the center. He said it was anthropoperipheral, that we are creatures on the margin. And the medieval model would be that the earth is this place of change and death. And as you get, the moon serves as this kind of boundary with one face looking at earth and partaking in that. And the other one looking away towards the heavens where there's less of this until we come to the third heaven and the place of immutability. And Lewis loved this model, not for its scientific accuracy, but for its mythic meaning-conveying properties. What Lewis saw was whenever we went scientific, and the reason that happened there was that meaning was lost. And for all its scientific inaccuracies, there was a God-centeredness to this medieval model as it began to be worked out, despite all the other kind of problems. And that's why he loved it. And so, one way you see this, I don't want to read these, these lengthier quotes that convey it. I just would commend to you, you'll, whenever, if you pick up the Space Trilogy and you begin with Out of the Silent Planet, and it will take you a while, I think, to engage. It does for me every time. About uh, uh, the first half is, is slow going, and then all of a sudden, I'm all in, and I read the last half in a fourth of the time that I read the first part of the book. And there's this magical moment whenever Ransom is in space, and he talks about how the... Uh, the modern concept of space, emptiness, vacuity, coldness was completely inaccurate. And he talks about being impacted by light and sweet influence. That's a key word to understanding uh, the medieval model that I hope we'll get into in a bit. But um, I, I will say this, Ransom... It says this there, he says, A nightmare long engendered in the modern mind by the mythology that follows in the wake of silence was falling off of him. He had read of space at the back of his thinking for years. Had, at the back of his thinking, back of his thinking for years, had lurked the dismal fancy of the black, cold, vacuity, the utter deadness, which was supposed to separate the worlds. He had not known how much it affected him till now. Now that the very name space seemed a blasphemous libel for this Empyrean ocean of radiance in which they swam, he could not call it dead. He felt life pouring into him from every moment. And if you've read the trilogy... Whenever he begins to encounter these angelic beings, that's, that's related to life pouring into him, light. And then he, he encounters two, both 
the figures of Mars and Venus, whenever he's on Venus in, in the book Paralandra. And then you come to that hideous strength. And there is the descent of the gods, if you will. The seven planets of the medieval cosmos. Not just Mars and Venus, who you've already encountered, these angelic uh, persons over these, these creations. But uh, Mercury and Jupiter and Saturn as well. And this influence of the seven planets is what brings us to Narnia. How so? Scholars have long debated if there's anything that holds the Narnian Chronicles together. There have been several suggested, none of them really satisfying. Lewis himself suggests in his writings at times Christological themes, and, and, and indeed that's there. Uh, we, we can see the Christology that's, that's developed without. But as far as an or, while, while we see Aslan is chief and prominent throughout Chronicles, as far as Christology being the organizing theme, as you look at the seven novels and the Christology that's there, it doesn't fit that that would be the organizing theme. That's an emphasis, but not the organizing theme. Uh, or put it this way, Aslan or Christology, is the central theme, but it's not the guiding scheme of Narnia. And so, what happened was Michael Ward comes along, I think it's been about 10 years ago maybe, that he dropped the bomb with his book, Planet Narnia, which is detailed. It's, it's, my, it's the better book of these two, but if you, want a, if you want the light treatment, Planet Narnia is hard going. If you want the light treatment, he's got one called the Narnia Code, and there's also a documentary by that nature. Ward argues extensively and convincingly, in my opinion, that what determines the atmosphere of each one of the Narnia tales is the seven planets of the medieval cosmos. And so we don't have time to go into all the details, but let me just give you some hints of how he develops this. So, Jupiter, so I'm gonna, I'll tease out one of the planets, and then you'll have a bit of time as I'm doing so to think which one of the Narnia tales might that be. Jupiter, the jovial king, was Lewis's favorite planet. Around 1934, he wrote a poem, The Planets, in which he deals with all these planets of the medieval cosmos. You see, you, if you study Lewis, you can see how this model was in his mind again and again when he wrote. So here's, here's the lines about, a few lines about Jupiter. That his rays ripen, of wrath ended, of woes mended, of winter past, and guilt forgiven, and good fortune. Jove is master and of jocund revel, laughter of ladies, the lion-hearted. Who's thinking the lion, the witch, the wardrobe? You see? Mars, the god of war, associated with the woods. Next time you're reading Prince Caspian, Notice all the martial Mars. Notice all the martial imagery. Prince Caspian is loaded with not like no others. And, and all the references to the woods. 
without any really depth of discussion, if you had to associate Sol, the sun, with any one of the Narnia tales, and Luna, the moon, with any one of them, which two books would you pick? Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Journeying to Aslan's country. You see it in even details like this. With each of the gods, there is a medal that's associated with each one of the the planets, these gods. And remember the pool of gold, the island of gold, in the voyage of the Dawn Treader. The silver chair. The moon. Darkness. Now... Let's spend a little bit of time on this one because uh, it's, uh, well, it's my favorite Narnia tale. Mercury is the messenger god. And which one of the Narnia tales is there a message that it's critical that it be delivered? Well, a horse, I already gave the answer, a horse and his boy. But here's, here's, here's how, how the details get tied in. These are the kind of things Ward works out. Mercury, the messenger god, rules over Gemini. Gemini consists of the brothers Castor and Pollux, who make an appearance in the Bible. You remember whenever Paul set sail in Acts 28.11 and he mentioned the twins who were part of the figurehead? The twins are Castor and Pollux. Castor was a great breaker of horses, and Pollux, a boxer. Kor and Corin, or Shasta, and... Uh, and Corin. Recall that, remember, Corin was to go on. This fun little detail. Why does Lewis throw in something like this? Corin was said to box a bear for 33 rounds and earn the nickname Corin Thunderfist. Also in Greek mythology, Hermes, uh, so uh, Mercury's Greek counterpart, Hermes is the one who invented boxing. And moving on, come to Venus, and I think the nature of Venus especially as you see him deal with Venus and Paralandra in so many ways. The nature of Venus, and Lewis hated bringing romance into children's tales, which is why Prince Caspian the movie does something that should... uh, I, I don't judge movies by book standards. I don't think that's fair. But Prince Caspian did something that would disturb... Lewis, greatly, however you want to adapt it, and that's to bring romance into a children's tale. Um, and so you can see why Venus, uh, he, he began dealing with the magician's nephew after he finished The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but it was the next to last one published. It's the, of, the, of his fiction pieces, I can't recall of another instance where Lewis struggled to write fiction like he did with The Magician's Nephew, and I think it was because he wanted to do Venus justice But how do I bring Venus into a children's tale? And I think you begin to see Venus in several ways uh, that we could go into Hesperius' garden and uh, the apple and things like that. But one way to contrast it is uh, Lewis also talks about an infernal and a kind of heavenly Venus at times. And so contrast Jadis with uh, Diggory's mother in The Magician's Nephew. And then finally, Saturn. Saturn makes his debut in uh, The Silver Chair. 
You remember whenever they're underground and they come across the sleeping giant? But, and they talk about that giant to be awakened. But he's not called Saturn. He's called Father Time. But in an earlier, in, in his handwritten manuscript, Father Time is named Saturn. There's another instance where Lewis had made something explicit and goes back and covers it up. So people say, oh, if this planet Narnia had any legitimacy, Lewis would have made it known. Oh, what? Really? Well, Ransom, he decided, I don't want to make that explicit. Goes back and covers it up. Saturn, no, no, no. I don't want to put it in there, Saturn. I'll go back and cover it up a bit. Father Time. And then we see Saturn come to his full expression in the last battle. But above all the planetary influences... The striking thing that stands out in Narnia, just reading it through, ask any child, is Aslan. George Sayer, quoting Paul Ford, says, Aslan is his supreme achievement, the apex, as Ford put it, of his literary, mythopoic, and apologetic gifts. Though the planets were the atmosphere, Aslan brought everything together. Lewis had had in his mind, he said, this image of a fawn in a snowy wood carrying parcels since he was 16. He began to write a fiction piece after they had housed uh, refugee children um, during World War II, just like the Pevensey children. But he didn't have anything, it, it never got pulled together until he says the lion came in. It all began with a picture, this is the, the essay in which he says, At first I had very little idea how the story would go, but then suddenly Aslan came bounding into it. I think I had been having a good many dreams of lions about that time. Apart from that, I don't know where the lion came from or why he came, but once he was there, he pulled the whole story together and soon he pulled the six other Narnian stories in after him. Colin Durias, commenting on the unique ability of Lewis, says that along with Tolkien, part of their giftedness was that they could portray goodness. It's easy for authors to portray evil and wickedness. We're all familiar with that. Think of Stephen King. Think of, it's always, and you know this in films, don't you? You've seen it. It's easy to write a convincing evil character. I think that's why um, one thing is uh, too often we think that dirty is authentic and clean isn't, has no reality. There, there's something wrong with us in that bent, but uh, you, there, there's something too why humanity expresses itself so often that way in art and literature as well. We're, we're familiar with it. What what makes Lewis and Tolkien stand out from so many good authors that are they're equally as gifted in writing in some ways is their ability to portray good. The Christian worldview that's going behind that. Um, David Downing says, Joyce, Wolfe, Waugh, Fitzgerald, Faulkner, not to mention Stephen King or Anne Rice, are all are adept at portraying evil, twisted, neurotic, or self-absorbed characters. But how often does one find simple, good, decent, or wholesome characters portrayed so often and so successfully in modern literature? literature? At both the grand scale, Aslan, Galadriel, and the simple, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, the Hobbits. Lewis and Tolkien could show you what goodness looks like in 
the flesh. Lewis was so good at portraying goodness that he once wrote a letter to a mother whose son came to his mom and said he was concerned that he loved Aslan more than he did Christ. And among the advice Lewis gave was this, if I were Lawrence, I'd just say in my prayer something like this, Dear God, if the things I've been thinking and feeling about those books are things you don't like and are bad for me, please take those feelings and thoughts, take away those feelings and thoughts. But if they are not bad, then please help me stop worrying about them. And help me every day to love you more in the way that really matters far more than any feelings or imaginations by doing what you want and growing more like you. That is the sort of thing I think Lawrence should stay for himself, but it would be kind and Christian-like if he then added, and if Mr. Lewis has worried any other children by his books or done them any harm, then please forgive him. And help him never to do it again. That kind of humility is uh, the, the, that effort at self-mortification and humility that you find in Lewis again and again. Is I think tied to why he was so good at portraying good. Because he was not wanting to impact Lewis's goodness. But Christ's. Don't have... I don't want to take the time really to uh, unpack his academic works except to say that the abolition of man is, in my opinion, Peter Kreft says this as well, the most prophetic book of the 20th century. It's not an easy read, but it's brief. It's really short, under 100 pages, wide margins, large print. Make the effort at it. And here's how I'm going to give this book away, is if there's anyone willing to accept this challenge, take it. Otherwise, I'm going to have to make something else up. But here's the challenge. I think to really get what Lewis is saying in the abolition of man, you really want to unpack it thoroughly. Here's the reading plan. Read the Space Trilogy first. Read through it. Because the hideous strength, that hideous strength works out what the abolition of man is about. But you need to read the first two in the Space Trilogy to get there. Read the Space Trilogy. Read that hideous strength twice. So read through the whole trilogy. Read the last one twice. And then pick up the abolition of man to read it twice. And the first time through, the only thing I would advise you to do is have your phone handy And every time there's a Latin phrase, every time there's some kind of quotation or allusion that you know that's he's alluding to something there, look it up. So whenever you come across and he's talking about the green book, what did Lewis mean by the green book? I wish there was an annotated edition, uh, but there isn't. But so you look up the green book and so Google the green book, C.S. Lewis, and you'll find out the book that was in he was speaking in reference to. So do that kind of thing. Mark, mark it all to pieces the first time you go through the abolition of man. Don't worry about understanding it. And then, after you've got all the references and allusions and everything marked and, and so that you won't be lost when you come across them, you've got all the Latin phrases translated, then go through and read it. So if, you, if you're up to, I'll read the Space Trilogy through once. That hideous strength, read it again. And then the abolition twice. 
You can come take the abolition of man if you haven't read it. It's yours. With his letters, I'd only, I'll only say this. I, I think I've quoted enough from his letters for you to get a sense of their value. Um, there's, there's so much good counsel. There's so much of what he would say. There are different collections of his letters um, that you can read through. I read through the, the biggest volume of his three... The, there's, the, the biggest collection is the three-volume set of his letters. I read through the last volume of that, which is the largest one, through in a year, just reading, I, I want to say it was four to five pages uh, of his letters every day last year. And it was delightful. It's, it wasn't difficult at all. You, you breeze through them. They're not, they're not, uh, there's a whole lot of margin in there, and so five pages goes real quick. Um, and here's, here's what the takeaway from his letters is. You see, Lewis was, especially after screw tape letters, pounded with letters, and he responded to every one of them. Lewis and he... He did, he loved writing, he didn't like writing letters. So he wrote, not only for his own joy, enjoyed it. He wrote not only for comfort, for self-healing and coping, not only to think himself clear. He wrote not only out of pain, he wrote with pain, out of duty and love for others. Last biographical piece, uh, A Grief Observed. Lewis, near his last days, was surprised by joy once again. In fact, people, uh, because Surprised by Joy was published around this time, didn't, they suspected joy had a double meaning. It didn't, but... Uh, he was surprised by Joy Davidman. He did not expect to marry. And he wrote a grief observed in the wake of her death. And in chapter 4, he opens by saying, This is the fourth and last empty manuscript book I can find in the house. At least nearly empty, for there are some pages of very ancient arithmetic at the end by J. I resolved to let this limit my jottings. I will not start buying books for the purpose. Insofar as this record was a defense against total collapse, a safety valve that has done some good, the other end I had in view turns out to have been based on a misunderstanding. I thought I could describe a state, make a map of sorrow. Sorrow, however, turns out to be not a state, but a process. But did the experiment work? Did Lewis find solace in writing? Not exactly, but solace found him. The same way he was, joy came to him, the solace came to him as he's writing. He writes, The notes have been about myself and about H, Joy Hel uh, Hellerman Davidson. I'm, I'm messing that up. Shouldn't have attempted that. H is a reference to joy. These notes have been about myself and about H and about God in that order. The order and the proportions, exactly what they ought not to have been. And I see that I have nowhere fallen into that mode of thinking about either joy or God, which we call praising them. Yet that would have been best for me, 
praise is the mode of love which always has some element of joy in it. Praise in due order of him as the giver and her as the gift. Don't we in praise somehow enjoy what we praise however far away we are from it? I must do more of this. You see how joy, uh, how Lewis came to solace? Not the writing itself, but as it helped him think through and brought him back to God. Now like Lewis's notebooks, this lecture is coming to an end. And yet I've said nothing of the four loves, which is my favorite prose book of Lewis's, Letters to Malcolm, Reflections on the Psalms, The Great Divorce, Till We Have Faces, Studies in Words, English Literature in the 16th Century, or The Allegory of Love, and others. We simply haven't time to deal with the world that was C.S. Lewis. But what a world it is. It has some flaws, several of them quite severe. Nevertheless, Lewis in writing is simply superb. I put him in a unique class of writers, and it's odd as I look at this bucket of writers that I have here that I put him in with, G.K. Chesterton, Douglas Wilson, Martin Luther, I count them as among the most, the, the best of authors, the supreme, the, the best ones there are. And yet, everyone that I, I find in that bucket are exactly the men with whom I find myself disagreeing at times most sharply. And The crazy thing is, because of how good they write, I even enjoy reading them whenever they make me most angry. And I think that's exactly like my God, is it not? For Him to distribute so liberally this great gifting, not where I would want it, with a man who has orthodox theology rounded out and and well-developed just as I do but with someone who sees a bit differently than I do at points, and precisely because he does, helps me see better, helps me to see my own flaws and weaknesses and shortcomings. Lewis was preeminently a writer. His books have given me eyes, some of the best spectacles with which to see life. The lenses have a smudge or two, The frames can block out some places where I'd like to see better as I'm reading him. The blind spots caused by these spectacles can be detrimental, but where they are clear and and can see and help me, they are unmatched in what they do for me. That's the value of good writing. Lewis's writings not only helped him to think, they've helped me to think. And for that reason, I commend them to you as well. Let's pray. Father, again, we want to express thanks for your goodness and your grace. Every good gift comes from your hand. And so help us to receive Lewis, who I believe to be a brother in Christ, gifted for your church, help us to receive him. And to receive him not only with, with how you would, you would want us to, as a pair of spectacles, to see your truth. Help us not only to see with Lewis, but a bit contrary to the, the truth that he was communicating, but 
not an absolute, also to see Lewis's faults and failures and to avoid those. And so by your grace and your goodness, use them both in his fruitfulness and his failings to lead us to faithfulness. In Christ's name I ask this, amen.